0: So this evening I'd like to um, reflect on a, a theme that I've been personally reflecting on a great deal over the last couple of years, which is the theme of embodiment. As much as we can tell from the early texts, this man that we know as the Buddha was many, many things. He was probably the world's first psychologist, with his very profound understanding of cognitive process, which is still supported by science today. He was an activist. He was deeply concerned with social justice and social change. He was an original teacher in the sense of he wasn't following in the footsteps so much of other teachers, but had come to his own understanding and his own investigation to really come to a path of liberation which really hadn't ever been taught in the same way before. He was also an ethicist. He was very deeply concerned with how we live with how we engage with the world, with what we embody. And the one thing the Buddha was not, he, he was not a, an escapist. <laughs> he was not into uh, finding or, or uh, divorcing himself, disconnecting from the world, he, or developing you know, transcendent states from which he didn't return. He was so much engaged in living this life as it is, moment to moment, but with an inner freedom. And the legacy, I think, that we we inherit is that the Buddha really taught a path of awakening, a, a, real, a genuine path that we can all access, that leads from places of confusion and bewilderment, to a genuine, unshakable liberation of heart in which the, the patterns of greed and hatred and delusion are truly uprooted. And that's some, really something very profound to envisage, isn't it? To envisage for ourselves a way of being where greed, hatred and delusion are uprooted. Not just temporarily in abeyance, but uprooted. And the legacy of the Buddha, of course, was actually to suggest that uh, anyone or anyone who walks this path with sincerity and with commitment and with, with dedication would come to exactly the same understandings and exactly the same liberation that he came to. The Buddha was some, uh, he sought for graduates. He didn't seek for perpetual students. And the Buddha suggested that this this uprooting of greed, hatred and delusion has a very very evident manifestation and is expressed in really an equally unshakable equanimity and kindness and compassion. And the path, and I think I personally really feel there's a a huge difference in talking about path or talking about practice. You know, I, I meet many people who talk to me about their practice. And usually when they talk about their practice, they're actually talking about what happens when they sit on a cushion, or what happens in their walking path. And I I would actually personally really encourage you, if you can, to really think about what we're doing here as being on a path. And that this path is, is something much broader than just formal practice or sitting with our eyes closed or walking mindfully. Uh, Ajahn Chah, and some of you are probably familiar with the story of Ajahn Chah, when a Western student came to him complaining that he didn't have enough time to sit because there was so much to do in the monastery. And Ajahn Chah looked at him in bewilderment and he he said, you know, I've seen a lot of chickens who are really good at sitting and I've never met a liberated chicken. So the Buddha talked about something much broader. He talked about... um, a path of awakening, a path of awakening. And in a sense, this is almost could be seen as a kind of twofold path. Certainly the roots of that path, as the Buddha talked about, it, the roots are integrity and generosity. This is the indispensable starting point of any path of awakening. The one dimension of this path that the Buddha talked about is really almost concerned with inner development, the development and the training. And I use that word very specifically, the training of our own hearts and minds, the cultivation of our capacity for a very deep collectedness, for calm, for mindfulness, for investigation, the cultivation of our own capacities for intentionality and for understanding, for really coming to understand the way things actually are in this moment. Not our story about them, but the, the almost the universal story of how life is. And the Buddha talked about this this process that goes on, you know, where we're moving from uh, being in an argument with the unarguable to actually a way in which we align our hearts with that which is unarguable. When I say an argument with the unarguable, that's when, you know, we, we sort of go through our day saying this shouldn't be happening, things should stay still for me, nothing should change except when I want it to, you know. and I certainly shouldn't have any discomfort in this life, and if I do, it means I've done something wrong, or I'm not good enough, or you've done something wrong, and you're not good enough. You know. So the Buddha talks about the confusion of being in this state of argument, and that we learn to, to put down gradually that, that argumentative, that contentious way of being with life. And that's not dissolving into a kind of passivity or a kind of resignation. It's actually learning to align ourselves with with actually what is true, with what is arguable. The Buddha invited us to, to understand what is called dukkha in all its dimensions. And we'll probably speak about this much more in the retreat. But, you know, one dimension of dukkha is, you know, it's often translated as suffering, but it's a terrible translation. I mean, dukkha involves understanding the the rhythm of, of change, the rhythm of impermanence that touches all of our lives, the universal story of aging and sickness and death and vulnerability the Buddha asked us to understand the, the way in which you know, we, we, we cannot find in that which is changing and unpredictable any kind of lasting refuge or happiness. He taught, invited us to understand how we formulate these views of centralized self that divide us divide us from others and incur repetitive pain and experiences of contractedness. The Buddha invited us to do exactly what he did, to to be still and to look at our own minds, to look at our own hearts and to see the inwardly generated patterns and beliefs that cause struggle and despair and, and anguish and fear, to understand dukkha and its causes, in order to bring emotional and psychological distress to an end. So this is one dimension of the path that we're very much engaged in developing and cultivating here. The second dimension of the path is concerned essentially with what we do and how we do what we do. Concerned with how we engage with the world and the kind of footprint that each of us leaves upon the world with our thoughts and our words and our actions that splinter into thousands of consequences that we often don't see. It's this a dimension of the path that's really concerned with how we live the life that we have, how we live this life with those that we love and care for, how we live with those that we struggle with or fear or mistrust, and how we live and care for the countless beings that we don't know or sometimes just don't see. And this is the dimension of the path I think that is really concerned with embodiment. That recognizing every moment of our day, whether we're silent or whether we're speaking, whether we're acting or whether we're still, whether we're alone or whether we're together with others, we're always practicing something. We're always embodying something. I mean, you could even just bring that into this moment. You know, what are you practicing right now? You know what are you embodying right now? in your body, in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your emotions? and this is the path of a part of the path that's concerned with with translation rather than dissonance, with unification rather than fragmentation. it It raises some very deep questions about about the ways in which our lives are lived in the light of what we most deeply value and aspire to. Do we live our lives aligned with the integrity that we know to be so precious? It raises the question of how our lives are lived in the light of our understanding about what perpetuates struggle and distress and what brings it to an end. Embodiment, is concerned with the questions of of how much our lives and our words and our thoughts and our acts truly reflect the kindness and compassion we know to be so so essential. And the question of how much our lives are really lived with that as an embodiment of non-clinging, of letting go. Now, these two dimensions of the path, you know, this inner training and development and then the translation of that into the rest of our lives, these two dimensions of the path, they're they're not linear and they're not hierarchical. I mean, it's not as if we have to wait until there's a perfection of wise view um, before we begin to live in the light of wise view. We could wait for a very long time. You know, we we don't have to wait for uh, unshakable uh, kindness and compassion to develop before we begin to live with a commitment to kindness and compassion. You know, one of my teachers once said, he he said, you know, if you want to know what generosity feels like, be generous. (laughs) You know, if you want to know what compassion feels like, live with compassion. He didn't say, you know, wait until you feel really generous and then be generous. You know, so these two dimensions of the path are not at all hierarchical. But this inner development and embodiment go hand in hand. It's the way that we care for our own well-being as we simultaneously care for the well-being of all of those around us. There's a a line from the Samyutta, Nikaya, it says, looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others? By looking after oneself. By practicing mindfulness, developing it and making it grow. How does one look after oneself? By looking after others. By patience, non harm non-harming, friendliness and care. I think for many of us, the question of embodiment is quite rightfully and quite appropriately a challenging and even a a difficult sometimes and even deeply troubling question. You know, I think that there's many times in our lives when we can be painfully aware of the sort of gaps or sense of dissonance that is real and present in our lives. And, you know, we might deeply value kindness um, until we bump into somebody who really annoys us. And then we see the thoughts or the feelings of ill will arise so quickly. We might deeply value compassion, but then when we're often faced with distress... You know, our first reaction is one of fear and and one of aversion and and one of flight. You know, we might really know the toxic power of craving and how how it enslaves us. But, you know, that second plate of food looks really good. We might, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, I doubt if this is news to anybody, you know, that we wake up perhaps in the morning or in the morning here and, you know, set the intention to be present, to be aware, and then once again, you know, find ourselves ambushed by thoughts and emotional storms or else we just fall asleep. You know, how many of you came into the hall today and said, I think this is a really good time to just be dull? Probably not. <laughs> you probably came with the intention. The intentions we keep seeing how intentionality gets sabotaged by habit patterns that are often so historical. <laughs> we might have the intention to to speak with kindness, and then something pops out of our mouth we really wish hadn't. This is such a it's such a challenge, isn't it? You know how many people leave a retreat with so many good resolves, you know, about sitting every day and reading a discourse every morning, and then, you know, a good movie comes along, and we just forget. We just forget. The power of forgetfulness can be so strong. And and, and it's really what we take on when we come here. I think it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be willing to sort of take on that power of forgetfulness. That so easily sets us into the world of habit and the world of reactivity. I mean, intellectually we know we can't grasp hold of ever-changing reality, don't we? Does anybody think they can? By the way, but it doesn't stop us heroically trying. Mm-hmm. We know the the sense of 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 selfie. You know, the the idea of of, of Self being a process rather than a noun, you know, makes a lot of sense. And yet we so easily get caught in a view of who I am or who you are. I mean, this list, I could go on and on with this list of dissonance. It's very long and it could sound very depressing. But um, do any of you recognize these kind of gaps? You know, these, these gaps that exist... And they are the gaps where there's there's a dissonance, a discrepancy, actually, between intention and aspiration and our values and what is being embodied. And it sounds like very bad news, you know. And I think it can be a source of great discouragement for people, not only in their lives, but also on retreat, you know. It can feel very discouraging when we keep falling through the gaps and... It it can easily become a place where people get so judgmental about themselves. You know, I should be doing better. You know, all these years I've been meditating, I still did that dumb thing. You know, all these years I've been meditating, and I I still find myself fascinated by the notice board. Uh, You know, it, it can be so, in a way, so discouraging. But actually, it is not bad news. We could do, just as the Buddha did, to recognize that this is actually where we practice. Dissonance is where we practice. So much of this path is about healing dissonance, about healing the gaps, about healing these places of discrepancy. And you know this was as true twenty five hundred years ago as it is today you know i I know this this one discourse you know where where you know someone is is coming to the Buddha you know with, with such a sense of despair it sounds like in the discourse you know all the things that I just don't seem to be changing are not changing quickly enough, and the Buddha so recognized the the kind of intractable historical nature of Many of our habit patterns. And, and in speaking to this student, you know, the Buddha's going through this long list of antidotes to habit patterns, you know, and each time he begins a new proposal or a new suggestion, he, he kind of precedes it by saying, and if it still arises, you know, and the discourse goes on, and if it still arises, and if it still arises, you know, this, this sense of this remarkable patience. And I think we, we see a, a kind of tension in waking up, and I don't think that's a negative tension. There's a tension in waking up where our patterns of confusion and, and reactivity are kind of coexisting with our intentions. This is a coexisting paradigm. You know, our intentions and aspirations on one hand, and on the other hand, some of these very historical patterns of confusion. And this is actually where the path takes root, in embracing that tension, in our willingness to explore and to investigate that tension. Not to see it as negative, but actually to see that this is a creative tension. Of beginning to wake up. So, excuse me, to the topic of embodiment. I think about what is it. uh, I think of three areas of embodiment that are really uh, part of one tapestry. The first of those areas to understand what it means to to be an embodied human being, what it means to inhabit this body, very fully. The second area of embodiment, I think, is really concerned with the embodiment of the attitudes and qualities that truly transform our hearts and lives. And the third area of embodiment is the embodiment of understanding, the embodiment of insight. So I'd like to go through these three areas a little bit. What is it to be to embody this body with mindfulness and understanding? I think it's clear to all of us just how much value this teaching gives to establishing mindfulness within the body. Because here we are practicing within one of the core gaps and the core areas of disconnection in our lives, the separation between mind-heart and body. And whenever that separation is in existence, there is inevitably a separation and a disconnection from this present moment. And this is something really to check out for yourself. When the mind is disconnected from the body, where do we go? Somewhere else into past, into future. I mean, we don't literally go, it's not literally into past and future, but we become lost in thought about past and future, lost in preoccupation, lost in proliferation. And so it's no surprise, I think, that the very largest section in the Satipatthana Sutta is given to mindfulness of the body. The other sections are tiny, but this is the big one. Um, it is not just a, a Buddhist teaching. You know, Walt Whitman once said that everything we have ever done, everything we do, and everything we ever will do, we do within this body. When we begin to sense being mindful within the body, we see this is always a present moment experience. Hmm? oh the body is always a present moment experience. We we do not have last year's broken leg right now, and we don't have next year's toothache. We have what is happening in this present moment, and we also see that the body is. It, it, it's hardly even. Hard, it's hard to think of it as a noun. It's a process. The body is a process. It's endlessly changing composite of, of uh, conditions and process. And the, the Buddhist instructions were very simple, whether standing, sitting, walking or lying down, whether coming or going, establish mindfulness within the body. And even went so far as to say, when there is no mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. It's quite a big statement. And I think this is, this, think of the challenge of this, when we're not established in the body, how we're disconnected from the present moment, and we're in a world of constructs. We're in a world of constructions. Yet we learn to come back. Moment to moment, we learn to come back. And on some level, it sounds simple to be embodied, but there's so many reasons why it's so difficult for people to be embodied, to really, as, to really inhabit the body. You know, there's not only the obvious difficulties of the enchantment of our narratives and, and our constructions and our fabrications and our fantasies and all of the habit patterns that are around that, but for some people, you know, the body doesn't feel like a safe place to be. You know, if you, if you live with chronic pain or illness, you know, the invitation to be embodied doesn't sound really very enticing. You know, if you have a history of abuse or trauma established within the body, you know, being embodied is not a safe prospect. You know, if you live with some psychological elements of body dysmorphia, the last place you want to be is in this body that you despise. So it truly is a learning curve to learn to befriend. It's not only to inhabit, but to learn to befriend this body as it is. And yet every single moment we do that, we're actually unsoftening and undoing some of the most powerful habits of dissociation in our lives. And in learning to inhabit the body, we do learn to inhabit this present moment experiencing. We're stepping out of the construction, stepping out of the narratives, and into a more responsive way of being. It's interesting that in Buddhist psychology, you know, we don't the Buddha never speaks about mind and body, as if these are two separate domains of experience. He always speaks about mind hyphen body, forward slash body, heart forward slash body. And I think as we inhabit and learn to inhabit the body more consistently, it does become apparent to us how transparent that divide is between mind and body. As we come into this much more felt, somatic domain of experience, we, we sense the interplay between the body and emotional experience, psychological experience. We sense the way that emotions begin to truly shape the body. We feel the body of sadness. We feel the body of, of dullness. We feel the body of aversion. We feel the body of anxiety. And we see that when we don't feel the body of all of that, it's almost as if we disconnect and the body just disappears and we're just lost in those storms. And there's something very powerful about coming to learn to feel the body of the heart, to feel the body of the mind. Is this something so powerful to inhabit? It is a powerful way of beginning to access some of that emotional complexity that often feels so inaccessible. And it is a movement into process language. It's not only that the body is a process, we actually see sadness as a process, you know. Mm. Uh, despair is a process, anxiety is a process, depression is a process. There, there isn't something that is static and, and final, and we learn to investigate with mindfulness these apparent solid edifices, you know, where we tell ourselves, you know, I'm a sad person, You know, or I'm an anxious person, or I'm I'm a depressed person. We learn to to kind of penetrate those edifices that feel so solid and discover they're not quite as solid as they seem. That there is fluidity, there is change. And the second area of embodiment, the second dimension, really lies within the intentions and the attitudes that we commit to to bring, commit to bringing to ourselves, our life, to to the events we engage with, with people we engage with. Mindfulness is not attitudinally neutral. It has the very core attitudes and the very core intentions of kindness, of compassion, and of renunciation, of letting go. This underpins all wise mindfulness. And without those attitudinal commitments, it's probably not mindfulness at all. It's probably attention regulation. And the Buddha stressed so, so clearly the way that kindness and compassion really lie at the heart of the path of awakening, at the path of bringing struggle and anguish to an end. They, they, are, they are the qualities that allow us to form wise relationships with ourselves kindness and compassion are what allows for a healthy society. It's what allows us to respect all beings who come into our world. And they learn, we learn in this practice actually, to naturalize those intentions and those attitudes, not only as inwardly, but in all the ways that we reach out and touch the world around us. It is these intentions, I I feel, that really the embodiment of them that really allows us to be a conscious participant in the healing of our world. A world that is so fractured by prejudice and by fear and by bigotry and by ill will and by mistrust. And in kindness and compassion have a, a courage and a fearlessness to them. They allow us to meet the world without being overwhelmed by ill will and by hatred and by greed. You know, it's so interesting, you know, in in the text, you know, the the Buddha, you know, really actually did apparently get up from the Bodhi tree and say, you know, I've done what needs to be done. That was kind of it, you know. And yet, this text tells us about the Buddha going through life and all of these endless meetings with what is called Mara, this sort of personification of greed and hatred and delusion. And the Buddha was having a conversation with Mara right up to the time that he died. And it really didn't matter how awake he was. You know, and he, you know, by all, all we hear was pretty awake. But I didn't mean that the world awakened with him that every time he went out into the world, he was meeting those forces of ill will and greed and hatred. But there's nowhere in the text where it says the Buddha was overwhelmed by that. Because those intentions and the embodiment of kindness and compassion and courage and fearlessness allowed him to turn outwardly to to the world and to meet that which is so difficult without floundering, without being swayed, without being broken in any way. And these qualities of kindness and compassion, you know, they're not separate from insight. They are the embodiment of understanding. Um, in, you know, they're not like optional extras, you know. I, I think there's a certain snobbishness that, you know, happened in Buddhism around 1500 years ago, you know, where. Kindness and compassion got to be seen as a sort of like poor cousins of insight. You know, like you did the real thing, you got the wisdom, and later on, if you had a little bit of spare time, you did a bit of kindness and compassion. And it, It's not how it's presented in the text. These, these are interwoven with genuine understanding and awakening. They are a kind of mindfulness. And the, and the Buddha put it so clearly in the Metta Sutta, He says, with friendliness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart, above, below, and all around, without distinction, without hate, without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called the most noble way of living in this world here and now. It sounds, in a way, like a big ask, but of course the size of the task is only ever equal to the size of the moment. You know, and it is so important for us to be, you know, we are developing that sensitivity and and that awareness of, of this kind of dissonance, this tension between our intentions and, and habit patterns. And so many moments in a day, isn't it? We, we sort of stand in that moment where we say, ah, there's ill will could go there. There's compassion or kindness could go there. We're learning to make those choices that liberate, that liberate our own hearts, but that also liberate the world around us from the ill will in that moment. The cultivation of these attitudes, of course, are not only brought inwardly, but they teach us to widen the circle of our concern, to extend our attention, uh, our capacity for inclusivity, our capacity for compassion, to embrace the felt and lived experience of the universal story of all bodies those that we love and care for, those that we struggle with, those that we don't know. But knowing simply in that universal story that they, like us, long to be free from pain, long to be free from distress and loneliness, that they, like us, the person in front of us, longs to be respected, to be accepted, to be understood, to live with dignity knowing that the person before us, like us, has the capacity for ill will and hatred and judgment. And they, like us, hold the capacity to transform the shape of their minds and their lives. You know, what I see in, in, in you know, so many years of, of teaching and in my own practice, what I see so clearly is that the shift from ill will and fear and aversion to kindness and compassion and responsiveness is actually the most powerful shift that any of us can make. I think it changes the landscape of our world, both inwardly and outwardly. It's not a shift that we make just once. It's a shift that we might make a hundred times in a single day. But we're learning to make that shift. And we're learning to make our home in this most noble way of being in this world. Ill will is so powerful. You know, it's one of the ones the Buddha really spotted. So powerful in its capacity to fracture. Its capacity to create fear and anxiety. And how ill will creates the other the other. Sometimes the other is external, you know, the people we define as being the other, the people that we uh, mistrust or, or feel anxious about or fearful of or ill-willed towards. And you notice, you notice that whenever we create the other, we create much more the solidified sense of me simultaneously. And sometimes the other that is created through aversion and ill will is created inwardly. The body that we can't accept, the pain that we fear, the the thoughts and the emotions that we feel contempt for that become the other. And exactly that same fracturing deepens and grows. It's always interesting, you know, making that shift, you know, from ill will, I think, to befriending and compassion, you know. It's it's not immediate. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of commitment. And something else it takes is restraint. That's not a very popular word, really, in our culture. You know, it's interesting, I was teaching somewhere in, in Europe, Europe, I will not name the country. Um, but it was being translated and I was using the word restraint and suddenly the translator stopped and looked at me in total bemusement and said, well, you know, in our language we don't actually have a word for restraint. And I thought, oh. Because so if you don't have a word for something, you actually don't have a thing. You don't actually have it, you know. I mean, you actually don't know what it means. You don't know what it looks like. You know, language is helpful sometimes. <laughs> But every word that, know, when I tried to probe it a little bit, every word they had that came close to restraint had some sort of connotation of suppression, some sort of, some sort of connotation of like pushing some, some, a very negative connotation of putting something down. You know, whereas in Buddhist psychology, restraint is the forerunner of renunciation. It's the forerunner of letting go, you know. Restraint is about really having sufficient awareness within ourselves to make a pause, you know, rather than being pushed by every impulse that arises, including the impulse of ill will, which is a very powerful impulse. Learning how to pause in the midst of ill will, learning how to pause in the midst of anxiety, learning how to pause in the midst of fear, rather than heaping you know, fuel upon the flames, learning how to pause and learning what it means to bring compassion and kindness to ill will and to anxiety and to fear. Because these are not something to judge and to condemn, but these are places of tremendous distress within ourselves, not only within our world, but within ourselves. When we learn to change the shape of our minds, we do change the shape of our worlds. The third area of embodiment is the embodiment of insight or understanding, uh, aligning our lives with the way things actually are. It's easy to live in a world of shoulds, isn't it? Shoulds that we impose upon ourselves—the way I should be, the way you should be—we're very generous with our shoulds. We might say, you know, Mm -hmm. the way you really should be right now. You know, Uh, we we impose it upon so many things, and it's always a kind of moment of disconnection, a moment of dissociation. And you might, you know, every time you hear the word "should" in your own mind, you might just have a little curious peek at how much aversion is there you know, and how much, how much resistance is there, and, and how much pushing away might actually be there. We are learning, what does it mean to align ourselves with the way things actually are? You'll hear that phrase a lot in Buddhist teaching, you know, the way things actually are. It's not a statement of ideology, by the way. The way things actually are is what we can all universally agree upon if we look quite closely. Mm -hmm. Things change. Mm -hmm. There's very little certainty in this world. There's very little predictability in this world. You look around you in this room, there is no one in this room who is not going to age and die. Mm -hmm. There's very little solid that we can rely upon for security. If we look quite closely, it's actually pretty difficult to find any fixed sense of me. What a changeling creature I am. I'm happy at breakfast, sad at lunch, depressed at dinner time, and elated by nine o'clock. And it's very hard to find any me that I'm going to carry through my life as some fixed narrative. Is this is what we can universally agree upon. Ah, this is actually the way things are. It's not news. You know, I find it what's so curious, you know, that the kind of the teachings of the Buddha about the way things actually are, it's not news to anybody. I mean, nobody comes on retreat and hears about impermanence for the first time for crying out loud. You think, wow, that's amazing. Never knew that. <laughs> it's not news. We know this. We know this. But it's not very easy to live our lives in the light of it, is it? And that's sort of the difference between knowing and insight, isn't it? Is that insight really generally has implications. You know, the the Buddha in looking at the world and looking at himself and how things actually are of changing and uncertain and unpredictable and empty of a fixed self, he said, it would make no sense for this being who is changing and unpredictable and uncertain and vulnerable to try to find refuge in that which is changing and unpredictable and uncertain and vulnerable. He says this would make no sense. We keep thinking it makes sense, though. I mean, we keep thinking it makes sense. That if we just try to hard enough, you know, we can make some, what we want to last last, you know. And what we want to stay the same, stay the same, you know. And, and the things that we want to change will change according to our timetables. Mm-hmm. And we know it's not so. Insight does have implications. <clears throat> you know, what are the insights, what are the implications of really our understanding of change? It's about not clinging. You know, what are the implications are of our understanding about instability and unpredictability? The implications to find refuge within the freedom of our own hearts and not security within that which can offer no genuine security. You know, but what is the implication of understanding that there is no solidity within the sense of me? Well, to embrace that fluidity, to embrace the, the freedom of that, rather than getting caught in those very closed and dark rooms of I am. These are the implications, and the embracing those implications, I think, is when we enter into the territory of embodiment. you know there's a lot of different elements involved here in making a shift from dissonance to embodiment, and we're engaging and cultivating those elements right here. you know we we cultivate stillness, we, we, we learn to investigate, we learn to be curious, we, we learn to calm and all of this is within the realm of our capacity. You know, we learn to befriend in moments of aversion. We learn to, to be still in the moments that agitation is arising. We learn to turn towards the moment rather than to turn away from. And this is all within the realm of our capacity here. And this, this is what, how we are moment to moment, truly learning to walk, new pathways of balance, of a lived understanding in which struggle and distress and pain can come to an end. Life doesn't come to an end, but our arguments can come to an end. And we can learn the tremendous freedom of our hearts that comes with with no longer being caught in those arguments and dissonance and living the understandings that really liberate the heart i really encourage you on this retreat to really think of yourself as being a student of awakening you know of being really a student of compassion of being a student of freedom about a student of understanding this this is the invitation of of being here I Thank you for your attention. We just have a moment quietly together and then we'll go into a walking period. So we have some time for some walking and if we could come back at 8.45 for the last sit of the day and it will be a short sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.